Welcome to Brave. Be inspired by the best leaders of Southeast Asia tech. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. I'm Jeremy Ao, a VC, founder, and father. Join us for transcripts, analysis, and community at www.jeremyao.com. Hey, I'm really excited to have you on the show. Uh, you're doing some amazing things in early stage investing across Southeast Asia with some great investments already out of the starting gate. So I'd love for you to introduce yourself. Sure. No, uh, really happy to be on. It's an honor to speak with you on the Brave Podcast. I guess just quickly, uh, I'm Hurston Powers. I'm the co-founder and managing partner of 1982 Ventures here in Singapore. We're an early stage VC fund focused on fintech across Southeast Asia. And today we're the most active fintech investor in Southeast Asia. I've been in Asia for over a decade. I've lived and worked here, Hong Kong, China, India, and then for the last seven years here in Singapore. So prior to launching 1982, I was at another fund uh, here in Singapore where I was on the investments and operations team. And then before that, I was a banker at Bank of New York Mellon, mainly focused on helping Asian companies list on New York Stock Exchange and, and NASDAQ. I started my career in New York doing macro uh, economic research and capital markets advisory for international companies. And I'm originally from Texas. <laughs> so that's a little bit about me. I've got two kids and a superwoman spouse that uh, helps me with everything else. Amazing. So what brought you to Southeast Asia? It's a bit of a long story, but I was in Hong Kong mainly focused on Chinese companies. Uh, many of the tech companies that you know today that, that have listed in, in New York, either on New York Stock Exchange or NASDAQ. And that market was fairly mature from getting these companies IPO ready to getting them uh, listed through IPOs. The next market we saw in my career uh, was India, where a lot of the similar business models, say the Alibaba of India or things like of that nature, were starting to look at the US. So then I started going to spending a lot of time in India my colleagues used to call me an NRI. Uh, some of your colleagues might know what that means. I was spending so much time on the ground there. But out of the corner of my eye, I could see that there was a real open opportunity for Southeast Asia. And this was about 10 years ago where the same types of companies with less regulatory hurdles were being built in Indonesia and Singapore. And from a listing perspective, the US made a lot of sense. So the bank that I was with, they sent me to Singapore to launch that business. And funny enough, I started doing more work with the local VC ecosystem and private equity firms just because there hadn't been real tech exits back then in Southeast Asia at that time. So it was a lot of education and I just fell in love with the region. And then I actually fell in love with the role on the other side of the table. And that's kind of how I got to Southeast Asia and how I got into venture capital as well. How did you get into venture capital? Because, you know, obviously institutional banking is very different, right, from venture capital. So walk me through that. To be honest, I didn't know that I wanted to get into venture capital. I knew that I wanted to be closer to entrepreneurs and founders. And in my mind, that meant that I was probably looking at a more private equity or late stage role, so to speak, uh, especially with my background with later stage and pre-IPO companies. And I wanted to move towards to being an, an operator when I, when I first started really thinking about it. And the more I got to work with VCs, many of the, let's call them OGs of, of Southeast Asia and a, a lot of my friends 
that were managing funds in India, I just realized that there was something special about that role, but it still hadn't crystallized itself in my mind. But then I had the opportunity to join a later stage fund that was focused on fintech uh, in Southeast Asia. And that's when I started getting deeper in the ecosystem and learning about the potential opportunities here. And what kind of became apparent fairly quickly is that mid-market buyouts for fintech in Southeast Asia, this market wasn't ready. It's, it's too young. That investment strategy was not fit for purpose for Southeast Asia at that time, uh, and maybe not even now. So my partner and I started digging into the early stage opportunity. And that's when it became crystal clear that this was the right time and the right place to launch a very early stage strategy that was focused on fintech. And it took, I can go into the details if you want, but it took a lot of um, testing with the market to see if that product, a seed stage fund exclusively focused on fintech in Southeast Asia, if the market was ready for it, if there were investors that wanted to back that strategy. And once we had a good indication that one, there was a gap in the market for this for this strategy. Two, there were investors that were ready to back two fund managers that were were focused on this. Then it became crystal clear that that was going to be my career. It was to launch 1982 and to be a true venture capitalist. What's interesting is that you chose to not only do it in early stage, but also decide on fintech as a thesis and specialization from an early stage. What goes into deciding what niche or specialization or strategy that you want to approach in founding? A VC fund? I would say it's similar to any entrepreneur. And it's almost a founder market fit type of framework that you need to think about. There are many opportunities in Southeast Asia. uh, But with that said, I might not be the right fund manager for some of those opportunities. So if it's extremely technical, deep tech, I'm probably not going to win those deals or earn the trust of founders uh, because of my background. But my partner and I had a very strong expertise and experience in financial services and fintech itself. Kind of, We had the credibility with founders in the region and with investors to say, this team understands Southeast Asia fintech better than anyone else. I hope that doesn't sound arrogant. It's just that I know that that's something that I'm passionate about, that I can get deep into, and that if there was an opportunity for, for 1982 and myself to win, to be the best performing fund, I would have to focus on our strengths which were our fintech background expertise and network. That's interesting because you say something like you're a founder of a VC fund and you want to play to your strengths. And I think most founders don't necessarily think of VC fund founders as founders. Could you share what you think is similar and what you think is different from being a founder of a tech startup versus being a founder of you know, a VC fund? There are many similarities, even if off the, on the face of it, uh, it's, it's not apparent and it may be counterintuitive. But when you're launching a fund, you're really generally starting from zero. One, you're building a firm and you're doing all of the necessary things that are going to allow you to start acquiring customers, which are investors, right? And then the other side of your stakeholders are your partners or clients as well, which are founders. So it's really building a platform that can deliver some kind of financial returns and strategic value for your investors, and obviously be a partner for the founders that you're backing to make sure that they're able to achieve their goals and hit milestones. 
So one thing I can say that's quite similar is that my partner and I didn't take a salary for a very long time launching 1982 Ventures. We invested a lot of our own personal capital just to get this off the ground, even before we have to do our GP commit. We've already put a lot of money, time, resources, opportunity costs to launch 1982. For us, it's an all-in bet. Like I said, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to be a part of the best market in the world, in our view, Southeast Asia, at the key time when fintech will be driving most of the financial returns from venture capital in this region. So it's really, an, what I would say, an all-in bet from our perspective. There's no plan B. And I think when founders get to know us, they appreciate that, wait a minute, 1982 are founders. You guys work just as hard, if not harder than us, trying to push us to different milestones. And that's, that's not pushing them to grow faster. It's like, how can we help you achieve your goal? How can we get you to that tier one investor for series A? And we're working nonstop. This is literally all we do. So one milestone that I can also kind of share that I think many founders will also relate to, I hope, is I can remember two times, you know, feeling proud, so to speak. One is when our logo went on our door. You know, just seeing our logo on the door, it something just clicked. It felt real, even though we had been working months to do this. The second milestone that I'll share is in the last two weeks, we made our first full-time hire. And it's more emotional than I thought. It means that we're actually building a firm that I hope that will outlast us. And those are the types of things that I believe founders care about. They believe that we're in this game together and that we obviously we've got a lot of skin in the game uh, as well. So their success is definitely, uh, we see uh, aligned with our success as well. You said something interesting, which is you believe that fintech is going to drive the majority of returns across Southeast Asia. And now that's a contrarian point of view because there are so many journalists, VCs that are looking at all the different stages, in fact, and fintech may be 10, 20, 30% of the portfolio. But you're saying something very different, which is it would drive the majority of returns. So I'd love to hear your thesis on this. Sure. It's pretty clear in our view that the last 10 years in Southeast Asia have been dominated by e-commerce, ride hailing, online travel, online gaming. And those are very successful businesses that have grown and we're finally over the last two years have seen that culminate in exits and IPOs. So it's a fantastic uh, starting point for this region. But the fact is, is that compared to nearly every other market in the world, whether it's developed markets like the US and Europe, emerging markets, massive like China and India, and even markets like Brazil and Africa, fintech ecosystem development in Southeast Asia lags way behind. Only in the last two years have we started to see, I'm going to call it two and a half years, have we started to see fintech unicorns being born uh, in Southeast Asia. So imagine you look at Brazil, which is a great market, but again, not as attractive as Southeast Asia, already has a fintech listed on the New York Stock Exchange. That's where we're coming from as a base. Now let's take a look at what we call the drivers of, of Southeast Asia and why they impact fintech probably more so than the other regions. Or we believe that fintech has more room to run compared to a lot of the other sectors and it's the right time. So we've got this massive population, you know, which is not one region, but again, let's just start from there. We've got multiple markets uh, that have over 100 million population. It's a good start. We have about 65% of the middle class in Indonesia over the next 10 years will become middle class or 65% of the population will become uh, middle class. 
and represent that middle class uh, in Indonesia. All of these, let's call it macro drivers, the young population on the demographic side, the ability for people to access the internet, the, the high levels of digitization, the digital economy growing at pace. All of this is a perfect foundation for fintech to start basically allowing financial services to keep up because financial services have not kept up with this region. We have all of these incredible drivers, everybody becoming part of this internet population, but financial services still is not servicing half of uh, the population with bank accounts. Most people don't have a credit or even debit card in most of the markets. And then access to financing for individuals and SMEs is some of the worst in the world. So you've got this opportunity to really extend the reach of financial services through technology. And we believe fintech over the next two, three, five, and even 10 years will be the main value driver for this ecosystem. Another thing to mention, if you look at, and obviously there's been some hits on multiples across the world, but generally the most valued VC-backed companies in every other region, fintech is going to be there. In Southeast Asia, we're, we're just really starting from that perspective. That's really interesting because, you know, you talk about hits as well, right? And so there's been a lot of pushback and point of view that fintech has been overhyped, right? It was uh, built in a time of cheap debt, high multiples, and high burn, right? Which has caused a lot of fintech companies to not only, say, shrink, but also, frankly, implode, right, over the past year and probably the year to come as well. So how do you balance that macro trend versus what you're seeing in Southeast Asia? Southeast Asia is completely different. It might sound trite to say that, but the valuations here never ran up similar to the the way that they did in the US. So there wasn't really anywhere to fall. <laughs> you know, we're still waiting for the size of opportunities and exits to kind of match what we see in the other markets that is matched to the size of the opportunity in Southeast Asia. So when I look at the failure rate of fintechs, it's actually probably more likely lower than some of the other segments that received, let's call it hot funding. Obviously, quick commerce, quick groceries, they're dying every week, right? That's cash burning. As a fintech, you cannot burn cash. You're a regulated entity. You have to be more prudent. And if you're not behaving that way, you don't deserve to exist in, in our view anyways. So fintechs are built a bit different than, say, your typical e-commerce startup. Where trouble sets in is when you have folks that may think that, you know, oh, let's just add digital lending to this model. Lending is one of the most difficult things to do right. And that's why people are so conservative. It's a very sophisticated thing that's been around for thousands of years, but you can't just start giving loans over a phone and say, you know, well, we've got this special magic credit scoring. That's, that's not how things work. You have to be an expert operator in that space to build a business that one, is sustainable, and two, can, I guess, stand up to the scrutiny of regulation. So I'd push back on that, the sense that we've seen many fintech blowups. Mainly, we've seen unsustainable businesses blow up. Where we get from a multiple compression standpoint, I think that's a bigger question, is that will the quote-unquote smart money from the US, you know, the, the major multi-stage funds, the strategics that are uh, over the last three years have become a bit more serious about Southeast Asia, with their home markets imploding, will they, one, run away from Southeast Asia, kind of be the definition of tourist capital, or will they double down and see that the diversification aspect of having chips in, in Southeast Asia 
just makes more sense because I can tell you our investors are global. And when they see our financial reports, we're a breath of fresh air compared to their portfolio in Europe or their portfolio in, in the US. So to us, it's still very clear and there's still a lot of room to run in this space. What's interesting is your point of view that is not that easy to lend money, for example, right? So everybody has a pitch deck saying they have a AI-driven <laughs> credit score, right? So how do you differentiate between good teams and bad teams? Because you know, they all have the same pitch deck, right? You know, they're all going to lend money from somewhere. They're going to lend it better than everybody else. And there's a lot of loans to be given out, right? That feels like the fundamental pitch out there for every fintech, you know, whatever kind of opportunity it is, right? Whether it's in supply chain, whether it's for direct-to-consumer, whether it's in mortgages. So how do you differentiate between a strong team and a team that can't deliver? All of the things that you said, there's some signals or nuances around when we're getting to know founders and how they approach the market and how they see the market. Coming with a pitch to say there's a lot of loans to give is a definite red flag <laughs> to us. We want our platforms to be discerning and to not just continue to go subprime and lower their standards to increase their book. That's not a sustainable business. We want to see operators that are focused on providing the best service so that the best borrowers come to them as opposed to waiting too long with the traditional guys or going to loan sharks. It's also the approach. And you can tell a team or founders that actually have studied or worked in this space. The experience matters a lot. There's always novel things that outsiders can provide, but it's really that experience of having a book uh, or building this business, whether it's in traditional finance or at, a, at another fintech. Those are the things that we look for. But there's basically some nuance around how they approach the business, how they see the market that lets us understand if this operator or founder truly understands the market segment and truly understands the ability to scale a book in a sustainable way. What would you say are some myths or misconceptions that folks have for Southeast Asia fintech? I think you started touching on some of it, right? Which is don't go off the subprime, do go off the prime. What other misunderstandings can there be in a space? One major misconception that we see is that these markets won't allow for exits. And I think that's being knocked on his head every day, regardless of kind of post-IPO uh, stock performance in this tough market. The opportunity set has grown so much larger for us as VCs, each successful tech listing from Southeast Asia. It's these companies that are really setting the groundwork for the next wave of IPOs and exits. I think traditionally, Southeast Asia has been most of the returns from the VC sector have been delivered via M&A and trade sale, which we still think is going to be a big driver for returns for, for this ecosystem. But the fact that tech companies are successfully listing on the Indonesian stock exchange, that companies are, that US investors are now a bit more familiar with the Southeast Asian opportunity with companies like Grab kind of and C being able to, one, do a, a lot of education. I don't think people appreciate how ignorant, and I don't mean that in a, in a negative way, but how ignorant a lot of US institutional investors are about Southeast Asia. And the fact that now there's a light shining on this market as one of the most attractive markets developed or emerging, that we are in 
what I believe is going to result in a super cycle. These exits that have happened are just going to fuel this ecosystem with better equipped founders, with more capital to, to deploy, and more investors saying, this region matters, and I can see path to a very large exit. Oh, I love the word super cycle. It feels inevitable. <laughs> <laughs> you know, how does it go wrong? How does this super cycle go wrong? You know, what are the assumptions that drive this point of view? I can't speak to everything, and I don't want to. Um, I don't want to put too many words in other folks' mouth. But at least for fintech, regulation is a risk, and if regulators decide to potentially protect traditional businesses and banks from new entrants, that could definitely hurt this ecosystem in our view. We are very encouraged by the way that regulators have acted and conducting themselves in currently. We see Singapore as a shining example of one of the most progressive financial regulators in the world. I mean, everyone looks to our regulators here in, in Singapore to figure out what they should do. And they do a fantastic job of protecting the ecosystem as well. In markets where financial inclusion is a big issue, we've been encouraged that despite pressure from incumbents, the regulators are still pushing for digitization of financial services and working with the startup community and fintechs to figure out what are the right policies? How do we create sandboxes that will allow more people to participate in the financial services ecosystem. So while this is always a risk, especially if there are bad actors that put a stain on, say, the crypto industry or, or consumer lending, we need to make sure that the actors that are doing the right thing, that are actually providing value to their customers, that are actually bringing millions of people into the financial services ecosystem, we're shining a light for them and also making sure that we stay close with the regulators and have that dialogue so that the system is stable. When I look at other parts of the world, there's a lot of political instability. And historically, that could have been a big risk for, let's just say it, you know, Indonesia's about to head into an election. But everything that I hear from the ground is that Indonesia's not going backwards. And it's just an amazing feeling when you're talking to some of the largest investors there of the largest banks, to fintech founders, unicorn founders, even folks that are just thinking about starting their dream and everyone's determination to keep pushing that country forward. It just makes us feel so good to, to be investing in that market. I totally agree with you about regulatory action. We've definitely seen that with the Vietnamese finance regulators taking action on uh, local finance right uh, functions that are allowed to be done in the market. And I think that's uh, been a shock, but not unexpected, frankly, from local players. But I think definitely a shock for a lot of folks who are not familiar with the Vietnamese ecosystem. Whereas, of course, you know, Singapore, like you said, is uh, very much a very startup-friendly place, at least for non-Web3 fintech so far, <laughs> and historically some Web3. You know, I think what's interesting, of course, is that when we talk about fintech, obviously everyone is also talking about Web3, right, as an um, intersection. And, and for better or for worse, definitely we've seen some interesting implosions of Web3 companies that have had a link to Southeast Asia, like uh, Three Arrows Capital based in Singapore. Terra Luna, Doquan was hiding in Singapore. <laughs> and of course, FTX, you know, we had an, one of the top five executives came from Singapore. And, you know, Singaporean and Southeast Asian 
had a lot of deposits, right, in FTX. So I think lots of people think about fintech. And then, you know, what's been interesting is to watch you also not say Web3, right, <laughs> and blockchain. So let's talk a little bit about that. How do you see, you know, I think there was a point of view where all Web3 was going to become fintech and all fintech was going to become Web3, right? And I think that's a little bit nuanced now. So how would you see that th- trend playing out, if any, from your perspective? Sure. No, it's a great question. I think um, one, on the ground in Southeast Asia, there are so many, let's call them level one problems to solve with, and it's funny to say traditional fintech, <laughs> you know, that there's still a massive opportunity just to, to drive more, more fintech development in this ecosystem. But with that said, there definitely is an opportunity on what we would call the, the crypto space. And we may not be unique in our view, but we've always had the thought that if we were going to invest in crypto-related businesses, one, we weren't looking for, call it moonshot returns overnight. That's just not how we operate. We wanted infrastructure plays, you know, businesses that help institutionalize crypto for the market. And we hope obviously make it safer as well. So one company that we invested in, and we were one of the first investors, is uh, AAA in Singapore. And AAA is regulated by the MAS. And what they are is quite simply a crypto payment gateway. And they allow brands from all over the world and merchants from all over the world to accept crypto without having to touch crypto. So this is a very, it solves a huge problem for brands like LVMH or Singapore Airlines or anyone that could see their revenue increase by just having on their website, we accept BTC or we accept other major uh, cryptocurrencies. But one, they don't have the expertise. They don't have the infrastructure. They have no desire to set up a corporate wallet for these things. But what they found is that working with AAA, that their basket sizes increase a lot because the folks that pay with crypto generally buy a lot more. Two, because AAA is regulated by the MAS, they have the assurance and the protection that the buyers aren't on some naughty list or that the the KYC is actually done by a, a trusted partner uh, of the regulators here in Singapore. That's something we love. That's going to enable businesses to, to participate in this economy without getting their hands dirty and accelerate their entry into the space. Another company that can give you a flavor of, of how we think about this is we invested in another Singapore company called PolicyDoc, fantastic founder that was helping insurance companies, brokers, reinsurance companies launch cybersecurity and any product a lot faster by utilizing embedded insurance and embedded insurtech APIs. What they found is that actually their technology with a few partners could be used to provide crypto wallet protection. And obviously that's a huge issue right now. So many exchanges, many custodians are coming to them saying, how can we provide our clients and ourselves protection against hacks? protection against fraud. And with this crypto wallet protection product that's soon to be launched, we're expecting a massive take up because of all the issues that you're seeing in the market. So again, whether we're moving to Web3 for all fintech, there's still a lot of questions out there. What I'm focused on are founders that are solving big problems 
and that have something right in front of them. And, and we've been successful in backing those kind of companies. And if you're an infrastructure play, we want to talk to you. Amazing. Could you share with us a time that you have been brave? <laughs> I was scared of this question. I'm about to be brave right now. <laughs> I guess there's, I would say two things. It relates to launching 1982 and I guess kind of how we started coming to Asia, to be very honest with you. So I'm from a pretty small town in Texas originally. That's where I grew up. You know, fairly successful career in New York, but I moved there when I was 20 with no money. You know, so that was another time I was brave, but it's probably just dumb, dumb and young is when I wasn't really thinking about the risk moving to New York with, uh, I think, like about a thousand bucks in my pocket. And then when I got my first apartment, it ended up being 200 bucks <laughs> left in my pocket with no job. But anyways, that's another story. That, but I, I didn't feel brave then. It was just, just something I wanted to do. But the opportunity came for me to be relocated to Asia. And I'm a Latino. I'm from the US. I never even thought about visiting Asia. It was just not on my mind. I didn't even think I would ever come to Asia. It was, it was just something I was, I was not prepared to, to process. And then I was also thinking, I don't look like anybody in Asia. <laughs> like, how am I going to fit in? Is it, are you guys trying? The, the, I was at a bank. Are you guys trying to make me fail? Like, there was a lot of things that I was scared about that I would not be able to connect with the clients. I had a mentor and they said, you got to go for it. This type of opportunity, not everybody gets asked. It's a great privilege to get that expat posting and give it a try. Because if you're true to yourself, you should have no problems in Asia. I left my family. I left my family in New York, my, my mother and my brother, got on that plane and one-way ticket. And, <laughs> and it worked, I guess. <laughs> I always think about what decision tree, like where things could have ended up, but I couldn't be happier with that decision. And, you know, having what my mentors say validated made me feel even better about the region that, you know, being hardworking, being humble and, you know, treating people with mutual respect, which um, sounds obvious, but when you're coming from a US bank, it doesn't, it's not necessarily the culture. So just having those kind of traits, and it's probably you know, a function of my background as well, that, you know, being hardworking and humble, I was able to connect with clients really well in this region. It made me feel like this was the right decision. I'll never look back and, and think about it. So I feel brave about coming here, leaving everything. And granted, I had a, a soft landing, but it was a big decision for a kid from Texas who never even thought he would be in China. Then obviously launching the fund, that could be a whole nother podcast. Yeah. And why don't you talk about that second thing, though? You know, we got some time. Talk about that okay. second story then. Yeah. Okay. So I've told the story before, but I'm, I don't think everybody knows the full story. I didn't plan to be a founder or an entrepreneur. It wasn't really what I wanted to do. I wanted to be part of a great team. I wanted to be a part of building something big, but it wasn't that I, I had this burning desire to be a founder, so to speak. So that's just one piece of context. You know, I started a fintech company on the side and there was a point where I needed to make that decision to come as a full-time founder. And I decided not to take that decision, right? And continue to work my, my normal career. But when my partner and I really dug down and, and looked at what we had been building to, the expertise, the knowledge, that, the insights that we had gained by looking at this region, especially in fintech, it was pretty clear that this was a once in a lifetime opportunity that 
we like to think we're the right guys at the right place at the right time. I still didn't want to be a founder. <laughs> so, you know, we took a few weeks to kind of think about what our next step was, and we we're actually going different ways. And during that period, my wife and my, my eldest son, uh, we went to Taiwan, Taipei. It's kind of like my safe, safe space, <laughs> you know, just kind of relaxing, having good food. I had a breakthrough there. I knew I would regret not launching this fund. We didn't have a name. We didn't have anything. You know, it was just, I knew it. I'll never be in a position to go after an opportunity that I clearly know is there and that I clearly know there's a gap in the market for. And I remember standing in Taipei on the street, all the <laughs> scooters going everywhere, calling my partner and saying, I'm doing it and I want you to be a part of it. And he might not remember, but I remember him saying, I can't do it, man. <laughs> you know, I was like, I, I want to go, I need a normal job. I, I don't want to, I don't want to do this. So I said, all right, just know I want you to do this. I'm doing it regardless. I'm going for it. And uh, I just started building and building and kept him in the loop. And then I think about eight weeks later, we had our license from the MAS. Uh, we had a name, we had a website and the rest is history. I love what you said about being not a normal job. And I guess this time, you know, you're still dumb and young. <laughs> <laughs> not, not too young, old. man. Not too young. Not too young. Okay, well. So yeah, wait, you pointed 1982. So why 1982? It's not on your website. I'm sure everybody asks you, right? You know. It's the most uh direct or clear thing. It's the it's the year that my partner and I were born. So we're not we're not that creative. It was a placeholder, people liked the name, so we ran with it. <laughs> Buff that above yeah. All right. Awesome. And you know, I think for me, what I want to hear from you is what advice do you have for folks who are thinking about investing or building a VC fund? Because I think there's a lot of interest these days. And, you know, you as an emerging manager from the eyes of Pitchbook and the LPs, you know, you're a few years into your journey, even though you were born in 1982, it's only been a few years. So could you share what advice you would have for those who are looking to you know, build or launch a VC fund? Really ask yourself if this is what we want to do, because I guess Another misconception is that being a VC is, is all fun, that we trying to sit, take startup pitches, and then say yes or no. And, and that's our job. That is not the job of a VC, especially a, a general partner or someone that's founding a firm. It will be the hardest thing you've ever done in your life. And it's a get rich slow scheme <laughs> because as a new manager, your management fees aren't going to um, pay for the lifestyle that you may have had at, at Goldman Sachs or Google or, or things of that nature. So one, expect that you're going to take a massive pay cut if that's where you're coming from. Two, you have to really love fundraising. And again, I think that's another misconception. VCs, they don't fundraise. We fundraise all the time. <laughs> we're raising for our fund. We're preparing for raising for the next fund. And we're always fundraising for our portfolio companies. So you have to really embrace and really love the um, process and the act of fundraising. So if you say, you know, I'm ready for that challenge. I want to work with founders. I want to be the first call and I want to write the press release. All of these things. You're going to do everything. If all of that's there and you're, you're ready to make the sacrifice, then I would say you need to make sure that you as, and your team have an edge because there's a lot of great investors out here 
And that edge can be from network. It could be from experience. You got to show something that's a bit different. And we are not that unique. No matter what our, our parents told us, we're, we're actually, there's, there's no new idea. So you have to demonstrate that, no, this isn't the only idea, but we can do it better because of who we are, what we've built, what we've done. Uh, and we're different than everybody else in, in a few ways. That's one thing. If you're just starting out, start angel investing. Even if you don't have a lot of capital, just to, to kind of get a feel. Being an angel investor is a very different mode uh, than being a VC. And the, the folks that have made that transition from angel investor to VC can attest to that, the, the way that you think about deals. But that's one way to, to at least get your foot or your, to dip your toe in the water to see, all right, are you comfortable taking risk? Are you comfortable taking risk with other people's money? Are you able to generate syndicates for a founder? And are you okay that you may lose your friends and your business partners and everyone and people that you're, um, you may lose their money? So you have to be comfortable with risk and you have to really think that this isn't a job of just reviewing pitch decks and taking meetings with founders. We are stewards of many people's capital. And you have to take that responsibility very seriously. And when people think about VC, they think of the venture capital part. They don't think of the fund management aspect, that this is a business, that you're, you're building a firm and you have responsibilities, one from the regulator, but also as fiduciary of other people's of third-party capital. So it's a serious endeavor. I wouldn't take it lightly. I think when the markets are, are booming, everybody wants to start a VC fund. I doubt there've been many that started during a pandemic. And that's when 1982 started. I guess going back a little bit, when we launched the fund, we had, I say two anchors pretty much committed. And then I think it was end of February, Manila lockdown, Singapore lockdown shortly after. And I have to look at my partner. We have $0 in the bank or zero investors and say, are we still going to do this? <laughs> you know, we can't even travel anymore. People are so scared because of this pandemic. And we looked at each other, we're still going to do it. So if you have that drive and that desire to do this, then reach out. I'm happy to talk to anybody that's thinking about launching a fund and give them as many insights and hopefully help accelerate their journey. But it's a serious and entrepreneurial endeavor. I hope I didn't discourage anyone from, from doing it. It's a great thing. I would, I would not choose to do anything else. I saw a tweet the other day saying, um, if you could get paid half a million dollars a year to do anything, what would you do? And instantly I knew I would not choose anything else than do what I'm doing now. Honest, hand on heart. I know this is what I'm supposed to do regardless of, of anything else. So for anyone that has that dream, please reach out. I'd, I'd love to help. Awesome. On that note, I'd love to wrap things up by summarizing the three big themes here. The first, of course, is the exciting uh, thesis on Southeast Asia's fintech super cycle. I love the uh, passion uh, and enthusiasm about the opportunity, the upside, friction in the market, and also I think the insights right on what makes a stronger team and what makes a team that is less likely slash sucky, right? And uh, the second thing is thank you for, I think, your advice on how to launch a VC fund. I think a lot of good advice with your own chronology, your own thesis, your own edge. And I think generalizing that to the advice that you would give to emerging fund managers on angel investing first, and of course, making sure that you know they are actually passionate about the role, right, at the end of the day. Oh, and lastly, thank you so much for sharing. I think the team of mutual respect is something that I really respect. 
like you said, your previous banking jobs didn't really uh, hold that in high regard, but it's something that you strive to communicate in your daily work and also at the VC fund and during this podcast. So uh, thank you so much for sharing your insights. Thank you, Jeremy. It's been a blast. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share this episode with friends and colleagues. Sign up at www.jeremyow.com to discuss this episode with other community members in our forum. Stay well and stay brave. Thank you.